I would have loved to have challenged ourselves to a point to where someone could defeat us. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? See, because he's an intimidating personality. Like, everybody this, is this kissing his nice. butt. Everybody's kissing his butt the whole time, but I come at it. People always tell me he's handsome. He's not handsome. It is important for a superstar. The team reflects their personality. Give it to him. Give it to him. Boom, shakalaka. The first time you got hit in the screen by one of those girls, you, you <laughs> felt sure it for felt sure. It. Did you know you were actually this good? No. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Irishman Inside Basketball with me, Jarrett Regan, from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. If you would like to hear the full unabridged conversations that have been put out here, including hours of extra content, sign up to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and you'll get access to every single episode we've made. Susan Moran, or Susan Lavin as she know now, is without a shadow of a doubt the greatest Irish female basketball player ever to play the game. Her 40 and 50 point games were the stuff of legend when I was a kid. We heard about it. We didn't see it. We just knew that there was this phenomenal female basketball player in Tullamore uh, by the name of Susan Warren. Uh, so we weren't surprised when she got a scholarship to St. Joe's in Philadelphia. But I think everybody was blown away by how she dominated when she got there. She started every single game for the four years, led the team in scoring and rebound all four years and set school records all over the shop. She uh, is still there. She still works for St. Joe's. She is the associate head coach and responsible for player development, meaning that she goes into the living rooms and tries to convince girls and their families to try and take the same journey she did. She's a legend at St. Joe's. They hoisted her jersey to the rafters and afterwards, of course, she went on to play in the WNBA and became the only Irish woman to do so. She also played overseas in Australia, Spain and New Zealand. But what you're going to get here is maybe the longest interview she's ever given and the deepest insight into what that life was, that life that she chose inside the game of basketball. In the coming weeks, we have some massive episodes also with Kieran Donaghy and George Munford, the sports psychologist for the Chicago Bulls and the mindfulness teacher to Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. I like to give them a shout every week because they are a charity back home in Ireland devoted to helping young people with their mental health skills. Why not go over there and check out what they're up to and maybe you can help them, maybe they can help you. It's Jigsaw.ie for forward slash now but for now just sit back and relax and enjoy the Susan Moran episode of an Irishman inside basketball. Sue Moran thank you so much for doing Irishman abroad inside basketball this is a real treat and a real highlight because rarely can you say that we have the greatest Irish female basketball player (laughs) ever to have played the game in conversation you don't do many interviews and I feel like in the last little while uh, people have started to give you more credit for what you did during your career. First of all, what was it like to be achieving all these things, the height of your career and feeling a little bit like Ireland didn't acknowledge it or care? You know, I would say 
I never fully paid attention to mm. that side of things. At the time, you would even think getting a little blurb in the paper, it might be three lines or something, that was attention. And my mommy was buying 10 copies of the paper and my granny was buying 50 copies of the paper and everyone was very excited. So I probably thought I had it made getting a line here or there, you know. Mm. Um, but so I feel I like never... if, a, if a boy did it, if a, if a lad had gone over and played D1 ball and gone to the NBA, I mean, he'd be in RTE Sports <laughs> Personality of the Year. He'd be getting shout outs. There'd be a there'd be a show specifically, a segment about it. I just <laughs> I, I remember at the time trying to hunt information on you because I knew that this was going on and it was exciting because you weren't when you arrived in America. It was obviously a massive culture shock, uh, but uh-huh. you you excelled almost right away. What do you put that down to? I think some of it was just being absolutely clueless. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I grew up, I played basketball because I loved it. I saw myself getting better and, and it, like it was never forced on me. It was never something I had to do all these even going to America I I didn't know what I was what I was getting in for I was just clueless so when I got there it was the same case so I I worked hard I expected to play I I didn't I didn't know that maybe a freshman's not supposed to start when they get to you know I I wasn't aware of these rules or unwritten (laughs) rules you know Mm -hmm. so to me it was just put the shorts on let's get out there and play which is how I kind of grew up and I think it really benefited me not having any idea what I was getting myself into. Blissful ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely blissful ignorance. So when I say culture shock, that's that's a bit of an understatement because the basketball that you played, I mean, you were you start out in Kilbegan and then you move mm-hmm. to Tullamore and it's in Tullamore at the age of 12 and you first kind of pick up the ball. And yeah. in your school, it's kind of it's not really a thing, but you and a group of girls kind of get into it. And in a very short time, because of this very special coach that you had, it appears that, you know, you guys can really play. That's our understanding of that kind of period of sports in Ireland. There wasn't any kind of you can do this, then you can do this, and perhaps you can make a living from this. It was just all about a fun way to spend time with friends. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, I had a group of friends who were pretty much all tennis players. We grew up kind of playing tennis together and going to different opens. And when I came to Tullamore, we were still into it. And, you know, you kind of get to secondary school and you're trying to find your way a little bit. And, you know, so my group of friends were, you know, the athletic friends. We were the jocks, I suppose (laughs) you would say. And Anne Ganley is that special coach you were referring to. She was kind of just getting going in basketball herself as a coach. I mean, we, we joke about it now. She said when she realized we were actually good, she started like reading ahead in chapters and books to try to stay ahead of us. As she was teaching us things. But we thought, oh, yeah, another way to, to hang out, spend time together. Like we all enjoyed being active and uh, we all signed up for the team. <laughs> That's kind of how it started. And we were we were definitely Sacred Heart was not known for basketball. We We started off in the D division. And it's something that I'm so proud of looking back. Like people will always ask you about different memories and stuff. But by the time that group of girls left Sacred Heart, we had won a, an A championship. 
So mm. coming from the D, and like we won the C's and B's and stuff in between, but coming to, from a D school, even like the sound of the letter D, you know, you get a yeah. great D. It's not very good. <laughs> it sounds terrible. But to, to they could have come D. up with a better name for that level. <laughs> yes, terrible. We were D yeah. school. So one of the things I still have up in my office, and anyone from Ireland who visits get a, gets a kick out of seeing it, is my um, All Ireland A medal from the mm. Basketball Ireland. So, yeah, we were just a bunch of girls who loved sports, wanted to hang out, spend more time, and. We were pretty good. Kind of surprised ourselves, surprised our coaches, surprised the school. Well, that's an and understatement. Now let's let's <laughs> let's pause it there because, you know, the feats that you were achieving and the you know the most notable things in terms of dropping like big numbers in huge games that really kind of caught the national media attention in in some ways. Like our own school were doing really well at the time. We I'm happy to say got one of those All-Ireland A medals as well. Nice. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's no mean feat, but it is hard won. And in your case, it was, uh, you know, like, I don't want to blow smoke, but like <laughs> it was un, it was unusual. You you accept you must accept that now with 20 years of dust settled that. Yeah. Particularly in kind of FIBA or European basketball, you rarely see kind of scoring output on that level. Even now, when did you first realize that having picked the game up at 12 late, that mm -hmm. this was your this was your skill? This was the one that like tennis was great and you were very, very good at it and you played at a very high level for the country as well. But there has to be a kind of a light bulb moment when you realize, hold on, I'm a lot better than everybody we're playing <laughs> against. Um, I don't know, like basketball. So, like I started playing tennis when I was four mm. and, and I loved the feeling of hitting a ball really hard, which is probably to my detriment the majority of the time. My, my poor coaches were like, can you just sometimes not try to smack it? And I'm like, mm, OK, but next ball would come and I try to smack it. But there was a feeling I got from that sport. Right? So you played a lot of sports in school. There was this feeling I got from tennis that just was so satisfying when you hit like a nice shot down the line. It was just mm. something that was in you. And then. Bass, I, I, so I thought that this is my thing. Like, I like how this feels. And then I got on a basketball court and it was like a whole other level. The game just, it, it slowed down for me from, from the very start of playing it. There was a, just a feeling of when that ball went in the rim. I mean, you know, you know how it mm -hmm. feels. Like, even now I'm old and pregnant and sometimes I have a bad day. If I go out and shoot a basketball and it goes through the rim, it just feels so good. And, I don't know if it's the same for everyone. Oh, um, I, I completely know what you mean. I completely I talked to my son about that, too, that the sound, it's even the sound, the sound. Yeah, the sound of the net, the, the sound of the ball bouncing. There's something about it. So when I got out there, my my body felt different on a basketball court, like it belonged, you know, mm. like I felt really good how I moved on a basketball court mm. and that feeling I had from the very beginning. Um, even having failures, like I remember I was always good at right-hand layups and then we did left-hand layups one day and I was just terrible. Like it felt so, I'm like, this isn't right. I like this sport. I'm good at it. Why can't I do this? And I went home that night and just did it and did it and did it and did it so that I could kind of, you know, the next day come in and be like, look, I got it. And there was, you know, there, as a kid, there's not too many things that will drive you. Like there's mm -hmm. so much else going on. There's 
you know, there's home and away on TV and me, like there's other things to distract you as an Irish child. But the feeling of perfecting something in basketball would take me away from all that friends, you know, it wasn't a sacrifice ever. Mm. And that's starting from learning left-hand layups. I just wanted to perfect it and I wanted it to feel as good as the other things that I could do. Now, whether I thought that would translate into anything, no, Mm. but I really enjoyed doing it. I talked to Pat Burke about this as well. The the exact thing you're referring to here, the feeling that Mm. it's not work. And I guess it's a commonality among sports people who excel and even, you know, those that just do well, say, in a Sunday league, that it doesn't feel like work and that it if you can get there early, if you can get your child or the team that you're coaching to a point where they feel like the work is fun. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. it's it's not actually work to them, that that's the that's the sweet spot. That is Uh, the key. That's a struggle, though. Right. And that's a struggle. I think a lot of parents have that, you know, you're Oh, Pat talked about kind of, you know, trying not to overcorrect and l- uh-huh. allowing the child to come to the this passion for themselves. Did you have it just in you or was there because it sounds like uh, Anne Ganley was a hands off coach in, in many ways in that she was coming to it. So she was being guided by your passion. Yeah, Anne was demanding in that she actually made us run sprints and like would time it. We're like, what is this? <laughs> like, I mean, she probably read it in a book somewhere. This is what you do at practice. And we were like, wait a second, <laughs> hold on. And now that stuff wasn't as fun. You put a basketball in my hand and tell me to run up and down the court. I'd be like, no problem. Mm-hmm. But now you're out having us run around and touch lines and stuff. Not as fun. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But what I, I do think, unfortunately, to any parents who are trying to, like, figure out how their kids are going to be the next superstar, I do think some of it is innate. Yeah, and I think so, too. I do think the hands-off approach, I think Pat Burke obviously had it figured out. Like, coming from the parents in particular, I think coaches do need to be demanding. And that's a problem these days. Kids can't handle that as much. But the parent, like, my dad was just... Ah, did you have fun? You know, like it was all like he says it to this day after anything. Did you give a high five? Like that's his definition of was it successful? Were there a lot of high fives involved? Mm. And my mom was so into tennis that this basketball thing was like on the side. She really loved the tennis scene. So this was kind of a blip me like out playing basketball. So I had zero pressure from home. And so there were the demands of the coach and then the loyalty to your teammates. And I, I think that would bring maybe liking basketball. Some of it was that feeling I talked about and some of it was the team. Yeah. It was a whole different ball game when you had a team. So those two things pushed you to another level. But, you know, I didn't come home to someone wondering how many points I scored or how I did. Like they, they wouldn't even ask me. Sometimes I'd be like, hello, I had 40. Does anyone <laughs> in here care? You know? <laughs> Yeah. But they, it's, it's not they didn't care. It was just like, oh, you're happy. Good. Good yeah. game. Did you win? Okay, great. <laughs> you know, well, we, I talked no to, pressure. I talked to my son, Mikey, about this the other day that, you know, when you're playing with other kids, they won't like you won't remember the ins and outs of the game 
what they'll remember is how they felt, you know, the feeling. Yeah. It's the yeah. feeling that you walk away with. And that's that's really what, what I'm talking about here is how to get your kid to fall in love with the game the way you did. Now, your your love of the game is something that comes up in any interviews I found with you. And that has already come up here that like that true, deep kind of connection with it on a kind of a soulful level that it's meditative in some ways, like you say, returning yeah. to center and feeling more grounded after hitting some shots in the evening, pregnant or not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the going to the being presented with the keys of the gym and given that privilege, like, I mean, that is something yeah. the boys of Newbridge where I grew up would have <laughs> dreamt of uh, yeah. being handed the keys to the gym is like the keys to the city uh, to yeah. go and train at any time you like. Who made that decision and how fundamentally transformative and game changing was that for you? Yeah, it's so funny you bring it up because it's not it's not something I've talked about a lot. But when you go back and think about it in those terms, like as I got just the trust, first of all, that mm. an adult had in you. In, in an Ireland where insurance was a huge thing, that's, that that would be a great <laughs> insurance risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that someone had the trust to, to hand those over. And, and this was all Anne Gadley. And I think we spent so much time together and she knew I wasn't messing. You know, I wasn't I wasn't going to have people in the gym hanging out or, you know, mm. I was I was in there to work. So there's a trust level without ever even saying it that exists when someone does that for you. Hmm. And it also signifies a belief, right? Like, why yeah. would I bother trust you? Yeah, it's a buy in and, and give you this if I didn't think you were going to do something good with it, you know? So if you combine those two things, a bit of trust and a bit of belief, it can go a long way. Even again, I'm looking back on it now, years later, and analyzing it at the time, it was just it happened. But those things were innate, you know, those things were ingrained in that as you say, symbol of handing handing over the keys. Mm -hmm. And it, it did make a huge difference because for me, like I, I was, we, we my dad made like a carpenter down the road, made a backboard for me with a rim. And sometimes I think about it like it was the dodgiest rim you'll ever see. And I've actually debated it. I don't even know if it was the right, the right size. I've debated like creating something like that for my kid eventually. She's only two right now, so we're not there. <laughs> but I'm like, did somehow, because I had a nice touch around the backboard. And I'm like, is it because I grew up with like the worst backboard ever made? Yeah. That like, was definitely Possible. not specifications. Like everyone has, I, I look at the driveways here in my neighborhood, beautiful quartz painted and like the better backboards than you'd see in like gyms at home, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to put a shoddy like piece of wood up there. <laughs> And I feel like maybe like, you know, because you have to figure it out then where, you know, where is the ball going to hit to go in, you know, mm -hmm. could be mm -hmm. anywhere. But at, my point was at home, like there was no going out to the playground. Like I had a, a rim that was probably not the right size over kind of what you would call a garage at my house that was on a hill. Like there was like a little, you couldn't really dribble very well or anything around it. And then like there was this the rims at school, which didn't have a net or so it was so annoying if you had, you know, you had to go down and do a workout for your Midlands team and you did do 10 shots from this spot and 10 shots are, and the ball would go in. There's no net. So it's flying around everywhere. So to actually get in the gym, just to be efficient, to get inside with no wind and no rain, to mm, be able to shoot lights. was a huge, 
and lights anytime you want. It was a huge deal. Yeah, it was great. The legend goes that um, <laughs> Reggie Grennan shows up from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, uh-huh. that he drives to Tullamore and finds you and sets up a four on four game for him to see up close the eye test. Do you remember that this man showing up and did you fully understand the significance of, you know, how this is kind of the the path now? This is the life ahead of you. I don't imagine you did. Well, first of all, Reggie was a woman, so I definitely don't remember the man showing up. Sorry, my own latent sexism creeping in there. (laughs) Reggie Grennan was a woman and... um, I do remember very well her her coming to Tullamore. So the Sancho's team had been out already. This is kind of how I think I was as mostly discovered that we, we do these European tours over here mm-hmm. um, with our college teams. We still do it with Sancho's. Every four years, you're allowed to go overseas and, and take a tour and play some games. And a lot of teams chose to come to Ireland. It was easy spot to go. Basketball was, you know, decent enough. They weren't looking for great games. There's, you know, some basketball and everyone spoke English and the food was recognizable. So that's a win, win, win for, for the Americans. So a lot of teams would come over and I was playing with the senior team probably at the time. And so St. Joe's got to see me play in person and they were like, Oh, she's pretty good. How many did you score that night? Oh, no idea. Yes, you do. (laughs) Oh, I really don't. I don't, I, it's, I don't remember that stuff. And I finally have, like memorized literally how many I scored at St. Joe's because it comes up all the time. And then there was a couple of games in the cup and stuff where there was the 50 point games. And I've just seen those articles Mm. circulate so much that they're now in my brain. But I really don't remember that stuff very well at all. Is that because you, you weren't actively like a modern NBA player clocking your digits in your mind because you were just focused on getting the win. Yeah, I definitely wasn't keeping track of anything except I, I, I was someone who was in the moment, that's for sure. And then even after the fact, uh, I mean, who was even taking stats? I suppose we took scores. I, I joked about this the other day. Like you you have the score sheet, so you kind of know how many points you score, but no one was going around printing mm-hmm. out copies and showing people. You know, over here, like sometimes at halftime, I see some of the girls look at the stats. I'm like, what? You don't need to look at the stat sheet right now. We have another half of games to go, you know? Mm. But, like, no one told you how many re- – like, who was – at Newbridge, were they telling you how many rebounds and assists? It was, and definitely, like, it was definitely an inaccurate science. <laughs> Remember, <laughs> yeah. if you had a friend doing the stat sheet in the sideline, you knew, I'm going to get more rebounds tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we made up, like, at St. Joe's when, when they eventually signed me to jump ahead from Reggie Grennan. You know, they're like, all right, what are your stats? Because over here in high school, they have printed, they've statisticians at games in high school and mm. people are printing those things out. And we were like, wait, what? I mean, what do they want to know? So me and Anne are like, what do you think for rebounds? We, you know, we'll put down. <laughs> what will we put <laughs> down? No yeah. one knows keeping statistics. So like, is that too high or too low? What do you think? I have to know. What do you think? <laughs> so when I arrived off the plane, I think we probably went too high because they saw I wasn't actually six ones. So I think they were expecting like a center with like my 
between the points and the rebounds we handed them. And then I arrived off the plane and they were like, she's not quite as tall as we thought she was. So, so did you lie on the height or, or did it, it Anne? They did. They did. Okay. Yes. In order to get the scholarship over the line. No, the, the scholarship already existed. I think they lied on the height once I got there. Just, you know, I don't know, to... For the optics. For the, the opposition, yeah, mm. to, to scare the opposition. They had a 6-1 forward and... Then they'd call me out in the lineup and I'd stand beside the point guard and it was like, hmm, <laughs> they're a little closer in height right there. It so so I totally sidetracked this because you, you, you play them in their, in their tour and that's how, they, yes. that's how they spot you. That's how they saw me. But and, Reggie Grennan was Irish. So her mom and dad were from Ireland, um, okay. living in America, but I mean, had the accent still and... Um, so she was very Irish and so she was home, still had a lot of family at home. And uh, she was probably on a home, you know, coming home anyways. It was. I don't know if she especially came for me or mm. maybe they, she arranged that I'll go see that Irish girl again so yeah. she could get home. You know, the I, way I think the way I was sold the story was like Nick Nolte and Blue Chips wandering through the bushes trying to find <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Somehow she ended up in Tullamore. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we put, I mean, we didn't have enough people. It must have been off season. So like we didn't even have enough girls to like run a real game or anything for her. So yeah, we did do, I think it was three on three even. I don't even know if we had eight mm. and we, I think we played in the half court. Sure. I don't know how you could really judge on that, but they signed, sealed and delivered off of Reggie's opinion based on that little, little get together. And not too long later, I was heading to <laughs> it must have been like, like, I can't imagine what it's like to get the letter to go. This is a formal offer. This is, this yeah. is, you know, you can come here and you'd obviously visited the place. You yeah. had other offers from Boston and New York as well to name a couple. That actual pen to paper moment of and here we go. This is this is my life as as a bliv like in some ways. The ignorance is bliss isn't great there because you don't know what you're signing up for. Yeah, you know, it was no pressure because I never, never anticipating what would happen. I didn't know I was signing my life up. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a place reserved. You know, I had done the leave in, which mind boggling. I just was reading about it being canceled. Anyways, it's just crazy. Crazy. Um, because the leaving cert is like this. Ma I still have nightmares about it, actually. Um, it's just this massive thing in every Irish kid's life, I feel. But yeah, so I'd done my leaving. I had gotten my place. I had deferred it for one year. So when I signed that paper, it was like, you know what? This is going to be an adventure. Like, mm -hmm. I'll go. I'll go for the year. And if it works out, great. If not, I'll come back and I'll, you know. And, th and there was lots of people deferring places at that point, whether it was to go for a year, travel around the world for a year. You know, there was different reasons people weren't going to college right away at home. Hmm. Where, where um, did like you go? Where did you get into? Where was the place that you uh, deferred? Where was it? That is a good question. That's a mammy question. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was like business in French in, it was either UCD or DCU. And I know you don't even call UCD UCD anymore. It was somewhere in Dublin. It was one of those in Dublin. Hmm. And it was business in French. And... I deferred it and I said, right, sure, I'll probably be back next year. And so you, I heard you say on. that you were a, a Saved by the Bell fan and <laughs> <laughs> probably as a result of that might have had, like I did, a kind of a rose-tinted view of 
Americana and the life of geeks, nerds and jocks and you know, uh-huh. house parties and stuff. How naive that way were you and how like I would have just been bouncing off the ceiling. Just the idea that I'm going to go to America and play basketball at a division one school. I mean, <laughs> describe your mental state at that point. Was it as excited as I imagine I would have been? Yeah, like I, I definitely I, I was that person who I mean, I joked that really I wanted to go to the West Coast to California because like the scholarship was the way to get there. But I really wanted to be a surfer, you know, because that was that was the thing to do. And then Ganley was like, no one's going to visit you on the West Coast. You realize that very it's wise, really, really far away. And I was like, oh, logistics. You're right. OK, grand. We'll go East Coast then. But yeah, I've always been into and I think some of this maybe you can attest to is a basketball player's mindset like i like my like i still remember the sneakers i was sneakers oh i'm americizing myself here that's okay Um, i call them sneakers as well that's irish people give you a pass on that go ahead okay like (laughs) i remember the sneakers i wore for certain game like gear sneakers what t-shirts were cool like your basketball shorts like these things mattered they really mattered yeah me too so to arrive in a place where they were just like giving these things away for like I trying to find a pair of basketball shoes in Ireland at the time was really hard. <laughs> and I was a girl with like pretty big feet for a girl, which, you know, at times I'm like, ah, I can't get anything to wear. And then at times I'm like, this maybe is one of the reasons I'm pretty good. So I'm going to like I'm going to give my feet a pass. But getting like a nice pair of basketball shoes was a nightmare. And to arrive in a locker with like three different pairs and three different colors just for you plus all the other gear the preseason gear the practice gear was different to the preseason gear then they had the the sweats for when it got cold and then the travel sweats were which are a little nicer when we we're in the air i was like wait you're just gonna give it all to me like it's just for me <laughs> like that stuff yeah like i geeked out at all that stuff i thought i was really cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, that's kid in the candy shop. So I'm so happy to hear you say that, because to me, like that is the stuff that would have geeked me out. Like, I would you just I, like it's refreshing to hear that that excited you. I mean, oh, it still it still does gear day at work. I'm like, yes, what's the season's theme? What's the color? Give me the gear. Like, I, I'm still that person. <laughs> but you're now also the person or you're certainly part of that group that wakes the kids or gets the kids out of bed at crazy o'clock to be stretching on the track so early. At what point did the first flush of uh, free shoes uh, wear off (laughs) (laughs) and you start to realise that uh, timekeeping in the US in a Division One school is not Kildare or Offaly timekeeping of <laughs> sure we'll say for that means people will be there for four and I don't yeah. exaggerate I think a lot of the listeners know what I mean by that that oftentimes yeah. particularly in comedy in Ireland you'll put a time on the ticket and <laughs> that's the time to say the bar will be open <laughs> yeah. the show yeah, yeah. won't start for ages uh, I know you had difficulty with this. I know that timekeeping was was a, a problem. Maybe talk us through a little bit of how difficult that adjustment was. Yeah, I think just the time management. I think for for anyone changing from like secondary school to college, right? That's that's a big thing across the board. Ireland, America doesn't matter because you go from being in school all day and everything being one class to another to lunch to another class. You know. Mm. 
to all of a sudden having this freedom where you might have a class in the morning and then not another class till the evening. Mm. So there was just that to begin with. But the, the filling in part for us was, well, in the morning before that first class, you were on the track and you were like going hard and you were exhausted by the end of it. And then you had to go to that class and somehow stay awake, which I used to import those airwaves gums from home. <laughs> And just put like a whole packet in my mouth and it would just light you up and you'd be good for like whatever class you had. That, those things would keep you awake. Performance no enhancing chewing gum. Amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, you know, put my name on that one. But yeah, so, so that was tough. And then, you know, it's, it was more like the, the amount of showers one had to take in a day because you get up in the morning and you did your, your workout and then you showered and you went to class. And then maybe you had a basketball workout. So you went back to the gym and you, then you had to shower because you had another class. Like it was mm. multiple showers every day. It was very, very time consuming. <laughs> and again, not something that we did in Ireland. You would no. play sweat, go to school, sweat. <laughs> I, shower I, I tell one people a day. we wore like the socks we wore to our games were the same socks we wore all day in school. Like the pulled up to your knees, like you got in trouble from the nuns if they were too low. Like, Never mind the filth, but like the support. Like I, I'm so picky. Socks. Yeah, I'm picky about like my sports socks now, and I think it's from this ingrained like PTSD of wearing these socks and sweating in them, and then going back to class in the same socks. Like so we didn't gross. have we yeah. didn't have showers. Like we just got a, a new. They redid our gym at the Sacred Heart, and. They showed me the lo- there's like a locker with working shower. Like there were showers there, but that's where people dumped their backpacks. Like you didn't use the showers when I, you know, <laughs> so strange. <laughs> so for me, it was just the days were were so full and everything was so new. So there was the physical part, but there was a mental. Mm. There was a man- even the mental part of it all being cool and new still is just activation and you're just getting taking it all in so i was just exhausted all the time my freshman year so so Um, let me stop you there because now your job as a recruiter is to like i think that your mental toughness comes out there right that like you you know you say there was a mental side to this that the grind of that the grueling nature of that i mean we could all do that for a week but this season's long, like you go October through yeah. through March, that's seven days a week, essentially, of grind. That's full full time job. I mean, if most full time jobs wouldn't have the, those many hour, that many hours or burn that yeah. many calories. You're now trying to find girls that have a, a, a makeup to yeah. to withstand it. You obviously have increased massively the number of foreign players that have come in. And I guess part of that is the support needed for those girls to feel mm-hmm. like you're not the only one in this boat. But you were. You you were the only Irish kid there, I'd imagine. Did homesickness come into it? That's a really interesting thing because, yeah, I mean, I had my lonely days and coming up to Christmas, I think. I just, and Chris, you can't be Christmas in Ireland. No. So there were times like that where I would have moments and, and be lonely. But... I would say I had more homesickness when my college career was over than I ever did going through college for the reasons we talked about earlier. There was always excitement. There was always something else happening. It was so new. I was doing this thing. It was going well. Like I was, it was go, go, go. So there wasn't too much time, you know, to be homesick. And then after school, when there was more time and it was a more regular, more regular life, I started getting these pangs for home 
home, like really mm. homesick, which I didn't experience fully while like doing this other part, like while doing this thing I loved, right? Mm. And I remember it was after college that I started really feeling it and I started seeking out Irish people or like there's a little Irish coffee shop not too far from campus. I started going there a lot and I signed up for a Gaelic football team. I had never played Gaelic football in my life. And it wasn't because I, I really wanted to go play Gaelic football. It was because I wanted to be around Irish people. You the know? sounds, yeah. And they were like delighted. They're like, wait, she's tall. Like she can catch. And I'm like, you don't understand. I have never kicked a ball in my life. Do not get very excited. <laughs> and also, uh, I'm completely exhausted from uh, doing what I'm <laughs> I'm meant to be doing here. They, uh, they, that loneliness and that that's kind of hard to explain to people that haven't emigrated. I think the, yeah. the, the lump in the throat, uh, they're kind of not not ever feeling okay uh, it's it's a weird it's yeah. not depression it's not it's it's not the blues but it's it, it is a an isolation a kind of yeah. um, an inquantifiable feeling of missing and vacuum yeah and the worst case of it i'll tell you is when i actually do go home because when i go home i'm like wait a sec like this is me like i'm I'm from here, you know, because people here ask me all the time, like, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, I always hesitate. It's a weird hesitation because mm. I've been in, like, I should say Philadelphia, but I don't. Mm. Instead, I hesitate. And I'm like, well, well, I'm from Ireland, but, you know, because it's still like, that's where I'm from. So when I go home and I feel like, wait, I'm not really from here anymore because I've been 20 whatever years in America, but I'm not American. You mm. know, that's a very that's weird very feeling confusing, to yeah. go home and feel a little bit like an outsider maybe to others more so but internally feel like no like you don't get it like this is where i'm from and then to come back here and i'm not you know to yeah. not really be american either it is a weird thing to navigate yeah but even this morning like just waking up this morning knowing i was going to have a chat with you like very exciting you know <laughs> to chat, chat with someone from home because there's <laughs> There's just a different. Um, I don't know. I, I it's. I completely it's really know. hard to I completely describe. Know. Yeah. The rhythm and pace of conversation is so different that, like, particularly living in the UK, and I have to be careful about how I word this. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, you do. Conversations meander in Ireland. They, it's one yes. of the reasons why podcasts are so popular, because we understand how it flows, and we're here. And we'll get there. There's no way. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, taking the piss in the middle of this. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to serious later. <laughs> and that uh, that is something that, you know, is ingrained in the culture. And, yeah. and you kind of can't expect that from wherever you are in the world. But well, I, I just think about one story with my dad. So we were off going to visit one of his friends and we were on, on bike. I don't know why we were on bike, but we went off on our bikes to meet his friend and typical, typical Irish fan. He wasn't really sure. He hadn't been on the bike out to his friend in a while. So he wasn't exactly sure where he was going. So we're kind of meandering around. I don't know even what part of the Midlands we were in at this point. And he came on. He's like, oh, let me see. Let me ask this fella here. And I watched like knowing what was going to transpire, but also like wishing I had 
a videotape of the whole thing because I, I don't think I could fully describe it to my friends back in America where it became a, a directional chat. But it started with, well, now I knew your, my dad owned a pub in Kilbegan, so like he, he knows a lot of people. <laughs> uh, well, I knew you're – now you're one of the – I'm making up names. You're one of the Galvins, right? Yeah. Well, was it your uncle Tim? Was he in the post office? It was him. Right. And Nancy, and this, this went on for a while, and I'm just watching it, and I'm like, this is just pure perfection. And then they get to the directions – and this fellow's like, listen now, you're not too far from Tommy Minnick's house. You'll go over the over that hill and you'll see a big tree and you take a left at the big tree and you'll get to a gate and it's a right and a left and you'll go up and down one more hill. You'll see the White House and it's the next one down the lane. <laughs> and and Daddy looks at him and goes, right. And I'm like, wait, you understood any of that? And off we went in our bikes and we went over the hill and by the gate and took a left at the big tree. And there was a big tree. Like it was a big tree. <laughs> right directions. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it sums it all up, mm. you know? Mm. And it was simple yet complex and beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It was just great. So, yes, I, you know, there's, there's something, like I said, I wish I had videotaped it because people just over here wouldn't understand what just transpired you know <laughs> yeah the bond that you create though with a group of girls that you spend that length of time with as you say your daily grind of that many sessions uh, a yeah. season that long even though they can't be you, you know like the girls in sacred heart they'll they'll never yeah. be i'd imagine though that the connections that you make there it's a different type of bond. The first season is is just a remarkable season that you have there uh, where you reach a height uh, that it takes until 2013 to return to. There must have been yeah. part of you, Sue, that was like, oh, this is this is how it works every year. <laughs> every year we win yeah. the Atlantic 10, cut down the oh, nets yeah. and everybody gets a ring. That's actually a good story. So first year you win we win and we go to the nca and when you make it to the nca tournament you get a watch from the nca every person who makes it to the tournament gets a watch so i gave my first watch to ann ganley wow. and then the next year we didn't win the a10 but we were still good enough to get an at-large bid to the nca tournament so you know year two nca tournament again get another watch i give it to my mammy Cause, and in my brain i wasn't sure who i was going to give the third one to but I was going to keep the fourth one for myself. Right. And I had to wait until 2013 <laughs> to get another watch. And I was like, nope, no one's getting this one. This is this is mine. But I literally thought like, yeah, this happens every year. This is what we do every year. This isn't that hard, right? But it's pretty hard to, to make it to the big dance. It is pretty hard. I mean, I don't I don't want to, uh, you know, embarrass you with the statistics and I will I will detail them in the I'll have detailed them in the voiceover. But, you know, two thousand three hundred and forty points and to be the the record holder uh, for points per game or in the school's history, Jameer Nelson not very happy about it and <laughs> seeing, you know, your number retired. Is there a sense when you reach the end of that, that after you don't get drafted, there must have been mm -hmm. a sense of, 
uh, uh, what was it all for? Why, why did I do this? Or was there a sense of, well, I guess the WNBA isn't for me. Europe's much more lucrative. That's where I'll go. And it's much closer to home. Yeah, I think it was never for me a money thing, right? And and you are correct in saying Europe was much more lucrative and still is than playing in the WNBA. For me, it was trying to get to that achievement, like to say I played in the WNBA. Because mm-hmm. no matter how much money either place was paying, yes, it was a much bigger deal to play in the WNBA. So there was a huge disappointment like when I didn't get drafted. And particularly because because all signs leading up to the draft were that I was going to get drafted. Mm. You know, you have people, it's, it's kind of silly, you know, you have your agents and this and that, and they're everyone's talking, and you think, yeah, I'm going to get drafted. And you're sitting there watching it, and then you don't get drafted. So there, there was this huge disappointment. Did you cry? And I, oh, I did, yeah. I did, not in front of anyone, but I, I definitely cried. It was something, I hadn't set too many goals for myself, like we talked about earlier, going over to America, it was I was ignorant, right? So I didn't know hmm. what to expect. What what I, I wouldn't even have known what goals to set. But having been there for four years and plugged away and worked really hard, and now all of a sudden, yes, I, I had set goals and had things I wanted to achieve. And this was the first thing I'm like, I'm not. This is not going to happen. And it was just this end, you hmm. know. Like yeah. I wasn't even thinking about Europe. I wasn't thinking about still playing. I just thought, man, like really thought that was going to happen and and it's not and that was a a huge disappointment um for me at the time thankfully it didn't last very long because i think it was two days later was when i got the call from new york inviting me to the training camp and i didn't even know what that process i didn't know that once i didn't get drafted i was like oh it's over i didn't know there was another part of the process and there was free agency and all these things that they were things i still had to learn but then I got that call and I remember sitting down and writing a new set of goals and how I was going to make this team and how I was going to make it happen. And I, every so often I have these memory boxes. I keep stuff in. I'll, I'll go through them every so often and I find it. And it was, it was still seems so young. Some of the things I was going to do, like, like make sure to take an ice bath every night, you know, because who wants to take an ice bath? Nobody, you know, <laughs> they were very simple little things to try to get me through these training camps. But once I got the call, I was like, all right. I'm making this team. I'm, I'm going to make this team. This is happening. So thankfully, that first disappointment of not getting drafted did not last very long because I mean, there was a, a new a new thing to, to get after. Lots of people went to that training camp. And as you yeah. have you've said before, they just disappear as the days go by. There's something really, <laughs> yeah. really brutal or kind of reality show about yeah. that in, in many ways. That, you know, you're you're required for the training camp essentially to as as fodder in many ways to kind of make mm-hmm. these games up and give the team a workout. And, you know, if you impress, you become part of that roster. Those games must be brutal. I mean, people are playing for their lives. Yeah. Yeah, it was a level of intensity that particularly coming down the wire when I knew it was getting close to the end. Like you, you have a sense of when the last cuts need to be made because like the season's about to start. So they want to actually, you know, tie up the roster, let's say two weeks before the season starts. So they just have the team. So, you know, each you, you start not realizing, at least I didn't. So all of a sudden someone would not be at training. I'm like, Oh, it was like, Oh, they got the call last night. And I'm like, Oh, the call. Okay. Mm. 
And, and this went on for like, you know, a week or two. And then when you realize that deadline is coming up, like each practice does become just that much more intense. And I remember, I remember the last practice. So one of the assistants was Patty Coyle. She was Philly, Philly, Jersey girl. She, this area played at Rutgers, was a legend like in, in the area for hoops. And she was one of their assistant coaches. She knew my head coach at St. Joe's pretty well. So I, I always felt like she's a good Irish coil also, you know. Hmm. I always felt like I had her in my corner. And, and she just she, she wouldn't give me too much information. But this one night she's like, all right, needs to be a good practice kind of, you know, wink, wink. And I'm like, oh, boy, like this is it, you know. Yeah. And it was and, – and you could tell by the numbers and you know who you're like – Anyone competing to get on that particular New York Liberty team was, was just competing to be on it because the the team was the team. It was Teresa Witherspoon who was the superstar. Mm. Becky Hammond was on the team. Sue Wicks was on the team. You know, like you knew who who the players were, and then you knew who the ones who might get cut were. You yeah. know, and it was me and a girl Tracy Gahan, who funnily enough ended up playing in Ireland at one point in the Super League. Really? Um, weirdly full circle but she was drafted and i was not and she came from either iowa or iowa state so big big state school and i came from small catholic school mm. so it was kind of stacked against me a little bit except for patty coyle in my corner maybe <laughs> and uh i remember that particular practice like i i that poor child like i was just animalistic like everywhere she was i i guarded her she would turn i would be just in her face like at, and at one point she turned around and asked for a sub oh. and i was like oh i got this like oh i God. got this and it was like i was done i was spent but i knew like if this is it this is it yeah so we go back to the locker room and we're sitting there and then they call they call her name and I was like, hmm. You know, now you're like, is that good? They called her first. Is it bad? You know? Mm. So she leaves the locker room. We're all just getting, you know, getting finished up after practice. You know, just sitting in Madison Square Garden, hanging out. No big deal. And she goes. She le leaves for a while. And she comes back in. And I'm trying to judge, like, her face. <laughs> I can't She was stony-faced. Like, I, I didn't get anything. And then they call my name. And I'm like, oh, man, like, is this it? You know, because you've waited for this moment and worked so hard for it. I'm like, is it? Is this it? Is it not? Like, what's happening? So I go into the office and it's, you know, the coaches and the assistant coaches. And they're like, congratulations. And it just didn't, like, sink in fully. I'm like, wait, I made it? Like, and you don't want to act like a, a tool, right? Like, wait, you picked me? <laughs> That's a really me. bad idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... I, I remember it so well. Like, it was just, is this real? Like, I'm on the team now? Can they still kick me off? Like, how does this work? Like, you mm -hmm. know, it was just, it was unbelievable. And then I have to go back to the locker room and poor Tracy cool. Gads yeah. putting on her jacket and, like, about to pack up her stuff and leave. And I'm like, all right. Like, yeah, I expected this. What, Whatever. <sighs> um, oh. But it was, it was unreal. And, and the funny thing was, Madison Square Garden, like a lot of the workers in there, um, the people who are laying down the floor and picking it up and mm. they're all Irish. They're all like off the boat Irish. No so it way. was like joyous news in Madison Square Garden that day that I oh. that I actually made the team. Like they they were all rooting for me, you know? Amazing. Yeah. I mean it it is it is the dream. 
for so many girls and so many boys, particularly like anywhere in the world, it's the uh, everything focuses on these two organizations. Yeah. E even if, as you say, there's, you know, there's an incredible standard of basketball in Europe and it's incredibly lucrative. But yet, for some reason, this is the top of the mountain. Why is that? Um, I don't know. It, it's, I mean, the best, I guess the best of the best are all in one place playing, mm -hmm. you know, because th these leagues in Europe have some unbelievable players. But in America, you've got all the best players. So the best players from Europe are playing over here mm -hmm. with the best players from America, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a sense of now you're, you're with the best you're of the, the best. You're the elite, yeah. Yeah. And then like a big part of it is marketing, and, you know, like <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't beat the the American ability to market and promote. And, you know, these leagues in, in Europe are wonderful, but you're not getting you're not turning on the TV and seeing them or you're not seeing advertisements for the gear. Or, you know, like I'm trying to think of some of these big teams in Russia or Turkey on the men's side, like you don't walk into a store and buy one of their jerseys unless you're in the country. Mm. Whereas I think just the leagues here are just so universal, you know, yeah. they're, they're just, they're big on, on both sides of the water. So, you know, this, this journey to that point, you know, it's not, I, I guess we don't have, I wish we had more time to <laughs> kind of go uh, to what happens next, because there's so much more to the story and there's so much more to what you went through. I mean, we haven't even covered the fact that you were playing out of position a lot of the time and that, you know, you had to basically relearn things from that point to contribute yeah. to the team, go to Europe and kind of enhance your game in the hope of contributing more the following year, only to find out that they weren't going to take you back. I mean, obviously, draft night is a heartbreaker, but uh -huh. that that cut where they're like where they cut you at a time when you can't actually go to other teams. It doesn't leave you in a great position to get another contract with another team. I'd imagine yeah. on the hierarchy of soul destroying, heartbreaking moments, that must have <laughs> been right up there. Yeah, I think that's probably top of the list, to be honest, because having gone overseas and done like the, the first year when I made the team, I felt like, uh, wow, like how did I do this hmm. even, you know? And then I had that year of experience in the league. I went overseas and, and really worked on my game at a new position. So I had a, a year, not, not just a couple of weeks to do it between college and the WNBA, but a year to work on it. And I came back and I just felt like I, I was better. You hmm. know, I felt so confident. Um, I was a better player. I was in better shape. I just felt ready. And I thought I had a great training camp that year, like way better than my first year. And when it came down to it, they wanted a point guard. And I was not a point guard, most definitely. But I I was never going to be a point guard. So, so like you said, to get cut, which made sense based on what they told me they wanted. Again, is it true or not? I don't know. That was tough. And then it was really late in training camp, so I didn't get to go somewhere else. So it really was an end for me mm. for that season. I wasn't sure. Like, I didn't know at that point if I would go overseas again and come back and give it another shot, like that was all up in the air. But to feel like you did deserve it this time, 
you know, and I'm sure people, this happens to people in many aspects, whether it's sports or work or whatever in their life, when you feel like you have, you've put in everything you had, you actually do deserve the shot. You're looking around at a camp and thinking, yeah, I can not just compete, but I'm better than these kids, <laughs> kids <laughs> and to get cut and to not have any, that's just it. Like there's no come back tomorrow and try. Like I was the person who got the call and didn't show up at training the next day. Yeah. Um, that was really tough. Yeah, that was that was really tough. So you're you're now on the other side of that, right? You're at the other side of the table delivering that news sometimes. I mean, we all remember in Moneyball, Brad Pitt telling Jonah Hill, don't dress it up, just clean cut. It's over. <laughs> is that yeah. is that what you understand now as to be the best way to deliver this news? Or do you put the arm around the shoulder? when you're delivering that news? Well, I would say on our end in the college game, we're not delivering that news. So, really? I'm, so, I'm, so I'm thankful. We're, I'm more arm around the shoulder when it's maybe someone's not playing as much as they would like mm. or they have an injury that ends their season. Or But the kids we recruit to come in and play, like it would be their choice to leave, not, you know, okay. we commit to them. A, that's part of our job to write recruit talent that's good enough to be there. So we're trying not to recruit kids who are not good enough to play. But once you commit to a kid, particularly at St. Joe's, we're going to, even if you're not very good that first year, we're going to work with you and make you better. So in the college game, there's not as many cuts. Some schools can, can do it, right? Maybe they bring you in and they say, we recruited five other kids in the next class and three of them your position and you'll probably never play here. You should maybe think about transferring. Okay. That well, happens. Yeah. <laughs> that, that definitely happens. <clears throat> it's not something we're known for doing at St. Joe's. Good. Um, well, I mean, that's a blessing. I don't like, I always just <laughs> think that that's the, that like as tough as it is for you to get that news and for any athlete to get news like that, you are still the master of your own destiny. And the way you turned that negative into a positive when Cindy Griffin at St. Joe's approaches you and says, well, why don't you coach here during the year and then go abroad and play? Yeah. You know, you said that that was like it ticked all the boxes because it allowed you mm -hmm. to get your masters, develop as a coach and uh, still play this game that you are desperately in love with in places like New Zealand and mm -hmm. Australia. But, you know, this relationship as a coach is just like that's 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 incredible longevity, first of all, to to be there now 16 years and now be in this position of a associate head coach and, you know, director of player improvement. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the, like that in basketball is, you know, it's it's as big, if not bigger than anything you did between the lines. You You must know that now, right? Yeah, I think, you know, getting into coaching, for me, as you just put it, it, it ticked some boxes. So I could continue to play, which was big box to tick. I, I wasn't done, but get my master's. And I had, you know, these ideas of being like big businesswoman, right? Like wearing <laughs> the suit and tie and well, not the tie, maybe, but <laughs> you know, the, power suit. Yeah, wearing the power suit and you know, doing my thing and being corporate America, whatever. And like that was really the intention. Really, you know, yeah, that was the intention. Get the masters, get that piece of paper, and then go out and like kick butt in the corporate America. And 
my friends had obviously all had a little bit of a jump start on me in, in this progression because they had not been playing in the WNBA or going overseas or whatever. Um, so they had gotten out of school early and, and started that rigmarole. And I would come home from my job as a coach and be just, you know, I loved my job. Mm-hmm. And I would look at my friends who like did not love their jobs. And I was like, wait a sec. Oh, light bulb. Like maybe I should do this for my job. So I There's can't believe you never even that like that hadn't. The, now, no. wow! I really, I never saw myself as a coach. I never saw myself Why? as a coach. Maybe I was too much of a player, mm-hmm. and it was actually an issue for me when I started coaching. Like not having the ball in my hands mm-hmm. was really hard. Yeah, not everybody and, suited to it. Yeah. And it was early on, the nice thing about it was like a big part of my coaching was I played a lot with the girls. Mm. So, you know, I'd just go out there and terrorize them. Um, (laughs) They would cry, but then they'd get to banquet night on senior day and they would say thank you. And I'm like, huh, this Mm. was all worth it. We all we all got somewhere, you know. So it was it was definitely a different path. Like I, I didn't think that's what I would end up my career being. Um, but like I said, I I would look at other other friends going to work and like it was literally wake up, you know, same drill. Whereas I would go in on a on a game day and I, I just feel like you can't recreate you know, you play for so many years and there's obviously an adrenaline attached to like getting ready for a game and your pregame warm up and what that feels like and mm. what that amounts to. And like you don't think about that as your job. And the closest you can get, I think, is being a coach because minus the physically being on the court, you're there every day. You're at the early practices. You're grinding away. You put all that effort in. And then on this particular day, you're going to play your rival from down the street. And on your drive to work, you are pumped and you just can't, you know, you cannot. There's not many. Yeah, I'm sure there's big presentations people do and stuff where they get their juices going. But there's nothing like going to battle against like the enemy, right? Mm. And you still get that in a job like coaching. So I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is a good fit. I should continue to do this. Well, that's that's an understatement again. I mean, it's it's been like and continues to be an incredible tenure. And you've elevated that university and continue to raise the standards there and produce these great players and these great teams. Uh, And it's just been like, Sue, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about it, even though we haven't, you know, covered absolutely everything. If people want to join us over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, I'm going to ask Sue a few more questions about present day Irish basketball, uh, the last dance and a few other things. Uh, So if you want to come over there and join us and sign up for premium, you can hear all that. But for all the listeners on iTunes and everywhere else, uh, a massive thank you, Sue. Been such a pleasure to have this chat. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. So as I said, there's a lot more. There's another half an hour of this conversation. If you want to join up and support the show and help us continue to make this podcast, join me and join our squad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Hundreds of you have already done so and are reaping the benefits of getting access to hundreds of hours of interviews and, of course, the bonus content every single week. 
I can't wait to release the George Mumford episode. We're editing it at the moment. Next week will be Kieran Donaghy. And later on in the series, we'll talk to a man who's devoted his life to helping Irish kids get to America, to get their scholarships to America. Paul Cummins and his Sports Dream Academy and uh, the story of his own dream and following his own dream and going over there too. That's a, a really wonderful chat that... Uh, brought back an awful lot of memories for me maybe uh, this is all bringing back memories for you please get in touch irishmenabroadpodcast at gmail.com is the way to do it I'd love to hear from you thank you for subscribing rating and commenting on the podcast it is great to feel that people are connecting with this series so uh, why not support it if you can patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad or at least support our charity partner jigsaw.ie by going to jigsaw.ie forward slash now but until next time thank you for listening my thanks to Brian Connolly for his production to Finton Wall for the brilliant design with me of the Irishman Inside Basketball logo check out his stuff Finton Wall is the designer to Connor Meany at Basketball Ireland for putting me in contact with Susan. He's such a legend and been so helpful to the show as it stands. It wouldn't be here without him. So thank you, Connor. To Brian Connolly for his production and Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. Thanks, lads. I'll see you next time for another chat from an Irishman inside basketball.